Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Baum. And I'm Gabriel Frisella. And welcome to episode four of What's Indie News. And today we're going to be talking about um, standard oh, sustainable development goal number four again, uh, specifically in regards to refugee populations and migratory peoples. And so moving on, I think it's probably a good place to start with actually just defining what people groups we're talking about today. And there's sort of um, three big categories that um, inter international aid groups look at. Um, today, we're going to be talking specifically about refugees. And do you happen to know what the definition of refugee is off the top of your head, Gabe? Mm, if I were to guess, I would say a refugee is a person um seeking refuge <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much what it is there's uh sort of this colloquial sense that like um people refugees are people who are seeking refuge from their home country for persecution for founded persecution which is like an important legal term uh, it has to be credible and well-founded belief that if they go back to their their home, if they go back to their home country, they will be persecuted on uh, political beliefs, religious beliefs, on other sort of freedoms that we enjoy uh, in the West. So refugees, the particular group we're going to be talking about are obviously refugees that are registered with the UNHRC or in another another humanitarian organization, uh, because obviously if they aren't registered, then we don't really know about them. So, I have a question, Peter. Yeah. What is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Good question. So, um, asylum seekers are essentially refugees who haven't found anywhere to give them refuge yet. They are people who have fled their borders and are actively looking for somewhere to give them asylum where they will essentially legally become a refugee. Um, and asylum seekers, again, have to meet the credible fears criteria. And uh, so... Every refugee starts off as an asylum seeker, but not all asylum seekers are a refugee, I guess is, is the way to, to put it. And the, the key difference is um, refugees have found somewhere to give them refuge. Okay. And I guess the last category to talk about, which is definitely not going to be the focus of this podcast because it's under a different legal framework with different rights given to the individuals and different funding frameworks and so on and so forth is uh, internally displaced people, um, which are sort of people who have not fled their borders, but they do also have credible fears due to war, catastrophe, or persecution, that if they remain where they are from, uh, they are no longer safe. And so... The reason why we won't be talking about IDPs um, in this podcast is that 
Like I said, they, they belong to a different framework. They don't qualify for a lot of the same international aid as refugees or asylum seekers would. And they also are governed under different uh, legal frameworks. Um, sort of both would be covered under the uh, Convention on the Rights of Children, which is a UN convention uh, that was ratified back in 1989. And that guarantees that all children have the rights to education, particularly uh, free primary education. And uh, the refugees will also be covered under uh, the rights of migrant workers and um, essentially a UN doctrine on people who have left their home country and that also guarantees an education. So it's important that like these two people groups are covered under different doctrines and have access to different resources. And so that's, I guess that as well as as far as talking about the the specific people group we're going to be looking at today, which is refugees, obviously that have registered with the UNHRC, the Human Rights Council, or some other humanitarian organization. That was a lot of me talking. <laughs> Anything you want to throw in, Gabe? Yes, it was. <laughs> no, I think that you covered that very well. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, then we can move into um, the countries that we're looking at today, right? Perfect. Yes, yes. So I specifically hid a lot of the research that Stan and I did. Uh, Stan is the guy who helps us research this podcast. I specifically hit a lot of it from Gabe because I wanted him to have an authentic, like, unedited, uneducated guess of where refugees actually are. So <laughs> we've compiled a list of, like, the top 10 countries that host refugees, and uh, some of them are a little bit surprising. And... um. Well, Gabe, do you, do you want to take a shot at uh, who the <laughs> some of the countries that are the top 10 hosts for refugees? The top 10 hosts? Well, okay, so I know one absolutely is not because, okay, it's not Germany. Because <laughs> you specifically told me I want this to be a shock for people who assume Germany or something is the biggest. So Germany is not on that list. Um the top 10 countries is Turkey on that list. I feel like Turkey would be on that list. Turkey is for sure on this list. Yes. Okay. Um, for refugee seekers is Egypt on the list. Egypt is not on the list. And Turkey Oof. is actually the number two country on my list. Oh, okay. As in they've taken the second largest amount of refugees. Well. All right, all right. So, all right. Give me, give me like up to three wrong, and we'll move on. So I have two more wrong guesses. Um, is Algeria on the list? No, it is not. Ah, jeez. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, is ah. Uh, Oh, my last one. Okay. 
I thought I was off to a good start with Turkey. Well, I mean, Turkey is a sort of a big hint. Um, where where might refugees be coming from if they're going to Turkey? Well, they're going to be coming from the Middle East mostly. Yeah, and so I'm, from- I'm trying to aim at like the, I guess, more gateway Middle East countries. <laughs> there's there's one country in particular that the refugees might be coming from. Wait. Am I countries that have refugees or that are producing Country- refugees? <laughs> countries that have refugees. Okay. But the countries that have refugees are going to be the countries that are close to places where refugees are coming from because they often do not have the resources to travel all the way to Germany or wherever. Yeah. Um well geez. Uh is is India on the list? India is not on the list. Uh, all right, okay. One right, three wrong. An order from uh the most refugees to the least refugees. My list is Jordan, which at one point had uh entire cities that were just absolutely overwhelmed with the uh with the syrian refugee crisis um obviously that's a a solid pick for country for for people from syria to go to because it's just across the border uh turkey is the second largest and then we have pakistan lebanon iran ethiopia kenya uganda the democratic republic of congo and chad they're the top 10 countries hosting refugees. And one thing you might notice is none of these countries are particularly known for having a lot of, well, I guess I should say Turkey and Jordan have pretty strong economies, but a lot of these countries on the list are not known for having robust economies, right? You have countries like the DRC, which is, uh, which is host to quite a few refugees from neighboring countries and that's that's obviously a problem because current international frameworks place a lot of the onus on the hosting countries for providing for the refugees so if a country is currently struggling to provide for its own citizens it's tough for them to um, provide for additional people groups that are coming and have nowhere else to go so moving forward, well, we're talking about education in relation to refugees, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have um, a big number of uh, countries with a big number of refugees. These countries don't have super big economies. And with that, they don't have the um, robust infrastructure to uh, educate all these refugees. Right. And and like I said, the, the legal frameworks really push the responsibility for educating these refugees onto the host country. Which is a little difficult, huh? Yeah. I, and so I guess moving forward, we've, we've sort of found five areas. Uh, well, yeah, I guess move into problems with current... Uh, current legal frameworks, um, responsibilities, and uh, problems that refugees face when trying to get an education. Uh-huh. So 
these uh these five big issues um language funding credential transfer lack of teachers and lack of resources so what do, what do you think is the biggest of these well uh the biggest that i've read from these countries particularly in jordan is probably the lack of teachers and resources a lot of the jordanian well i should say the refugees residing in jordan share a common tongue they're from uh just across the border a lot of them might even share common uh ancestry or cultural roots and so that creates that has created a bond between the uh Jordanian refugees and the well 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 not Jordanian refugees the Syrian refugees residing in Jordan i don't know why that's so hard for me right now but um yeah there's this common bond that i think that they have where it's a little bit easier for the Syrians to integrate but there are not enough teachers to educate all of the students so what you've seen is in areas with high refugee concentration as you've seen classroom sizes get bigger and bigger and then eventually they actually went to split shift teaching where they'll have a morning shift for Jordanian students and then an afternoon shift or an evening shift for Syrian students and that gives almost no time for the teachers to actually prepare and so the teachers are way overworked and there's just no way to really get around it without more educators and uh yeah so i guess um what we'll do about that and where we're going to find more educators is there's actually a lot of really cool work happening with technology right now there's a bunch of cool programs that have like um for example tablets that students can come and check out and have a digital library and it's been overwhelmingly successful with having just access to literature for kids to read uh because a lot of the students are struggling to read at level um in their their native language so just having things like that uh greatly improves their access to education and then there is also a bunch of uh studies on the impact of uh online courses uh because Jordan is actually a fairly well developed country uh that there is the ability to have strong networks and access for students to use the internet and so there's been a bunch of cool work in the technology front for students to use phone apps and online learning resources to sort of supplement the resources that they're get, getting at their public schools and i think that's the way that works in jordan but I'm not convinced that it would work in some of these other countries like the DRC which might not necessarily have that strong infrastructure to support these sort of programs. Yeah, like um we mentioned back when we were talking about technology and agriculture, um the well-intentioned one child one laptop initiative from a while back. Yeah. <laughs> so I like you were talking about like tablets for checking out and things and I was like, "Oh, well that sounds a little <laughs> <laughs> familiar but um but yeah i mean like like you said like if they have a a good educational infrastructure then you can use technology in to um 
to better and more easily service your students. But what about the places that don't have that infrastructure? Yeah, that's that's where it's a little bit more of a challenge, right? And like some of these countries on this list are severely lacking in all resources, not just teachers. Um, I keep going back to the DRC because it was one of the starkest that we could find data for, where they had something like one textbook for every six students and classroom sizes that were 107 students for every teacher. And having an influx of refugees when that's that's the given current educational infrastructure, there's no way to like solve that by just throwing technology at it. I think relying on technology as a silver bullet in education is something that'll work for some of these countries, but it's definitely not something that'll work for all of these countries. Yeah. So in that case, then uh, the biggest problems definitely are in lack of teachers and lack of resources, huh? Yeah. And I guess, I guess this is a good place to segue into maybe funding a little bit. And so obviously the the only way to get more teachers is to educate more teachers, which is a problem if your education system is already having trouble pumping people through the education system. But also like the, the textbook problem in the DRC is that's, that's only going to be solved through more funding, um, which if the, the government's currently struggled to provide, then it's going to be tough to find more funding. But luckily, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of legal framework, well, a lot of funding frameworks for assistance educating refugee populations. Okay, so I'm playing a little bit of of the skeptic here today. But um, <laughs> so if if there is that money the in those funding frameworks, then why do these problems and lack of resource persist? What's the obstacle? Well, I'm guessing. Well. There's there's probably many obstacles. There's probably a fair amount of um, maybe corruption in these countries, and uh, and I'm wondering if it wouldn't be more effective for us to spend the money instead of directly sending it in cash to do in kind donations, where we can have organizations with the access to these funding frameworks by the textbooks, send them to the teachers. And then that solves a lot of the problems with uh, actual sort of physical, tangible resources. And then the intangible soft skills, if, if we had more funding to maybe have teacher trainers go and help train new teachers, um, we might be able to have an influx of teachers to sort of lower the classroom size. And um, it's interesting because uh, the the Democratic Republic of Congo is actually not the lowest funded country on my list. The lowest country funded on my list is actually Iran, which is interesting because you don't see as many problems in Iran as you see in the DRC. So I I don't know what to make of those numbers where you have higher literacy rates in Iran. And um, I guess it could probably just be chalked up to infrastructure. Uh, There's just more of an infrastructure behind the education system to support 
the teachers. Yeah, and Iran is itself a um, it's fairly well developed for the most part, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I resent that comment. Actually, my the lowest con- funded country in the list is Pakistan. Okay, I know much less about Pakistan. <laughs> Maybe Kenya. The numbers are a little bit confusing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, a- another interesting thing to follow with the f- with the funding. Uh, so uh, I don't have funding on a lot of these countries. But an interesting thing to follow is the funding has sort of increased in countries with the who would have experienced firsthand the Syrian influx, the Syrian refugee influx. And you also see, I have a data set in front of me for out-of-school children. Do you also see a, a huge spike sort of at the peak migration of the civil war? And then you see it sort of taper off. So it's not necessarily all bad. You see sort of there there has been progress made on this issue. Um, so I guess that's a little bit uplifting. I feel rightly uplifted. <laughs> <laughs> so we sort of scatteredly talked about funding. We talked about resources and teachers. I guess for the sake of moving this forward, and we should probably talk about... Um, well, maybe not language, because that one's sort of obvious, right? Refugees coming from Syria might not necessarily speak German, so they might have trouble integrating into the school system. And there's been a lot of work uh, done on that front, where you have different models where, yeah, you have different integration models that I guess we could get into. Well, okay, so... Here's here's um, one of the five things that we talked about that is uh, not quite so obvious when you're thinking about educating, uh, when you're talking about refugees and education, um, and that's credential transfer. Because, like, when when we think about educating um, refugee populations, like that's not really what most people think about. They're just thinking about um, getting them learning, but we we did some reading about higher education, didn't we? Um, yeah. And SDG four, as opposed to the um, Millennium Goal, which was just about primary education, uh, SDG four focuses on secondary and higher education as well. And throwing in additional um, legal frameworks is under the Convention of the Rights of Children, there's also no child should be hindered on their, uh, in their attempts to, cha- to achieve, well, no child should be hindered in their attempts to achieve higher education by legal status or immigration or any sort of like religious or linguistic grounds. So this is important too that um, credentialing is a way for them to more easily integrate into higher education. As well, if uh, um, there are some organizations which do, which, which offer higher education options in refugee, high, refugee areas and refugee camps, 
and uh, they have to approach that in a much different style than you would in like a normal university system. Right. Because a lot of these these people, <laughs> you, you don't think like, oh, I should grab my diploma while I'm running from this war zone. You don't think like, oh, well, I don't have transcripts of my high school anymore. So these are things that will like, they're, they're necessary for the paperwork to fill out for any university anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I guess, I guess we could tie language into this too, is even if they do think, oh, I should grab my diploma, I should grab my transcripts, those are likely going to not be in the same language as the country that they now reside in. So now you have to think of, oh, now I have to find a way to, to get this translated. I need to find a way to get this accredited, which is a whole legal framework for someone who has just moved to a different country and speaks maybe a different language and has uh, different cultural values than the people around them. And culture shock is already a hard enough thing to deal with without having to deal with all of these legal hurdles involved with getting an inter- getting an international degree recognized. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, maybe that's just a little bit of me rambling because my degree is a Canadian degree and I'm looking at moving to the States after Mongolia and uh, looking at getting my teacher's license in the States and I have to get my degree accredited. I have to get it recertified in the States and uh, I have to do all of these hurdles just going between two countries that already have close ties. And if you're a Syrian refugee and you're living in, I don't know, maybe France or Germany or, or what have you, you don't necessarily have those same close ties that Canada and America does. So I could only imagine the headache that they must be going through. <laughs> headache is probably an understatement there. <laughs> okay, well, I think that we've hit on a lot of the problems. Um, we have from this textbook, what, what was this textbook called? Technologies for Development, chapter four of which is focused on this exact issue, SDG4, in relation to refugees. And uh, they look at specifically higher education programs for these refugee populations so we can briefly talk about this here on like what people are actually doing to address this right yeah sure okay so uh, taken from the conclusion of this chapter here it says uh, traditional higher education programs are usually geared to specific degrees still offer little flexibility and do not cater adequately yet to alternative learning pathways that is to say that, like, for the most part, the uh, the available options that refugees have are fairly narrow and not necessarily adequate for their situation. And otherwise, they are uh, advocating for a much more, like, ground-level type of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes yeah. i just get so, lost in the thought <laughs> <laughs> so um i guess there's a couple things to say like there there is a lot of progress being made on this front 
like I said, there's really cool programs in countries like Jordan to address lack of teachers and resources. There's been international conventions that um, establish that the recognition, burdens of proof for, I guess, actually probably burdens of recognition for refugee qualifications is on the countries and the institutions and not on the refugees, which is really nice, but uh, not exactly great in practice. What that means is essentially the universities that a refugee might be applying to have to disprove that the refugee has the qualifications that he, he or she claims that they do. Uh, so obviously that makes it a little bit easier crossing borders for education. And there's also like uh, Jeju Island in Korea just just got, I think, 500 Yemeni refugees, which is a small number, but Korea actually has a really good system for adopting people into the Korean culture and language called KIP. Uh, it's a program that I attended when I lived back in Korea. And other countries have integration programs like that that address language problems and cultural problems. And they also cover things like how to get a driver's license in this new country and how to apply for you know various government programs and i think moving towards that not only will help refugees uh, integrate into the economy of these new countries but it also helps them with the cultural struggles too and the linguistic struggles so i think that's also really important for sort of addressing these five problems yeah, but here's the skeptic again, right? <laughs> so that's great for Korea, which is like one of the world's richest nations. But what about the DRC there? What what about Ethiopia? It it would be great, like it is great to have um to have programs for cultural and linguistic adaptation. And like honestly, like how do you get a driver's license? Like <laughs> very practical <laughs> things like that. Like that's that that really is enormous, even though those are such small things. But then you have to actually have the funding and and create new programs and infrastructures to implement these things as well. So uh, I'm I'm playing the skeptic, not to like just like shut down all these things like it's it's great and it's enormous that that these um that these places that are able to do these things can do these things and and like i'm personally hopeful that in uh, in the countries that don't have this funding that as as a a global community we can help out that's a really good point a lot of these places don't have the government maybe stability or resources to, to implement a government program like that. But to be fair, some of these places might not necessarily need that in the case of Jordan, where they already share a common language. Um, and I think then we have to start turning to, like you said, the international community. And I'm sure a lot of these places are known for like their hospitality. So, so what we can do is we can encourage 
movements, I guess, from the ground up of local communities who are willing to to foster these refugees until uh, they are able to function in the community by themselves. I think one of the worst things we can do is keep refugees isolated in camps where they don't have a great chance of integration and they don't have a great chance to learn the language. Because even if you send teachers into the, the camps to teach the language, then they're only probably using the language when the teacher is there and reverting back to their, their native language when the teacher isn't, when they're speaking with their friends and family. So I think one of the best things we can do is find ways to encourage them, the community to welcome the refugee populations and not keep them at an arm's length, I guess, is is the moral of the Kip story. I think that's a fairly good moral. Encouraging actual integration and, and like not like not not treating refugees as a as a burden but also recognizing that like these people can be valuable members of the community in their own right right and they have a rather large economic benefit if like like migration is a good thing it's not something that we should be fighting migration is something that you get a new oftentimes skilled labor force coming into the country um particularly with refugees, they often have skills and education and they're coming into the countries trying to start new, start their new lives. And I think that's a huge potential pool that could be tapped into and providing extra skilled workers. And maybe if they aren't skilled, they still provide a labor pool that can be tapped into. And I think that's, that's an important thing that should be encouraged is when you have them integrated into the community, you get access to all of the benefits of their shared skills and knowledge and all of that stuff. In conclusion, there are a lot of there are a lot of, of problems and issues uh, facing refugee populations in general, um, education not least among them. But there are there are things being done there are strategies being implemented uh locally and globally and i think it's something that we can be hopeful about that's my that's my take on this <laughs> i i agree i think i think it's important that we meet these these sustainable development goals sort of as not this imposing impenetrable wall but sort of as a challenge that our generation is the most suited generation that has ever existed uh to solve right we're we're the we're the most educated generation that has ever existed we're the most uh, technologically advanced we're standing on the shoulders of millennia of human development and we're finally in the position that we can tackle these things like global education for refugees and uh, sustainable food. And I think that's that's an important takeaway from all of these topics is there is stuff that we can do about this. These aren't just the conditions of the world. These are things that we can actually solve in our lifetime. And hopefully before the the 2030 goals that the SDGs set forth. That's right. This is a hopeful podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. So uh, I guess uh, drop us a line on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook for you to see my hot takes about what is happening in the world and all of the good news that I'm sharing about refugees and climate change and the various things that we'll talk about on this podcast. And otherwise, until two weeks from now, when you hear our robo-Peter voice again. The contents of this podcast are ours personally and do not reflect any position of the U.S. government or the Peace Corps.